So why don't you guys buckle up and enjoy the ride because we're going to have some fun going green. And Abby said, you shouldn't commit illegal acts except perhaps at night and with your parents' permission. Your advice is making less sense than usual. Well, the important thing is family and friendship, honesty, values, and no one got arrested. You see this jerk? This is the same thing. Kropotkin was the same jerk, and Bakunin was the same jerk. Not good. Not good, I'm telling you. Was a, he was a very good dancer. This is a low life. George Orwell, who definitely didn't like socialism of any kind, warned us against it. He wrote books that said that totalitarianism is bad and that sticking with old ideas is good. I got news for you. He got you. Did you have population again? I did not know that. I, I never thought you'd lose a Stalin debate. You never expect to walk into one. Sure. Avoid Marxism. Or telling her you're a Trotskyite. Trotskyist. Only Stalinists would call a Trotskyist a Trotskyite. And I'm not a Trotskyist anymore. I'm a Maoist. Relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party. Because I'm literally a communist. Well, you know how it is. The main thing is to get those juicy likes and subscribes. And we can get some more of that sweet, sweet communist money rolling in. You know how it is, bro. Gotta get that communist out there. Gotta make it to the top. Just imagine somebody saying under cannibalism or under slavery or under dictatorship. Well, there's nothing you can do about it. Well, they'd be wrong. There is something you can do about it. You can get beyond these archaic systems and move closer and closer to fulfilling human capacities. And that's what we need to do. Yes, let's listen to David Grable. We need to deconstruct our society. Uh, this is Dan Platt of the Three Left Show. Hello, I'm your co-host, Michael Walsh. Wonderful to have you here. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself. The meeting, po the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. So I actually didn't work out what exact order I want to do all the stories today. But oh. they all have to do with direct action and... From anarchist stuff, uh, but particularly just direct action, which usually is in the anarchist milieu. So for those waiting for our, an anarchist episode once in a while, here you go. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, as we go around between the three lefts of anarchism, socialism, ecology, and bouncing around, uh, next time we'll do a China episode and then, then we'll, you know, then we can get all the hate for that. But we're well, not going to be fun. We're not out here to be polarizing. We're actually here to kind of get the cohesiveness together and say that all of these different types of socialism or activism are actually all valid. Uh, using a state, not using the state, ignoring the state, kind of interacting with the state, opposing the state. But you know, these are all valid, more or less, in certain circumstances. So context matters. Duh. So. But let's start with uh, kind of going off of, so like it, we, maybe we whet your appetite if you did listen to last week's show where we ended with a video from It's Going Down, or at least shared by them, about abolishing how basically to, to attack the police or the, or the justice system and its injustices and police brutality. We kind of need to uh, stop defending the concept of private property. We need to abolish property itself because, or as, as it exists, it is a white supremacist institution. It serves the interests of a ruling class that is particularly white, male, whatever. Put your monikers on it. 
Meanwhile, you know, the the policing system upholds uh, that property system, right? And 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 we have all these contradictions in our economy and society. How like just just look at the um, the back and forth between having eviction memorandums and the stopping the spread. You know, if we if, if the government said we will have a memorandum for as long as their uh, COVID rates are up, then COVID rates may never go down, or at least until you know we get the herd immunity from seventy percent getting it, and then we lose another million people or a few million people. But meanwhile, then everyone has to be stressed out about whether or not the memorandum will end, and then everyone, literally millions more, will be evicted because no one could ever pay that much back rent. It's not like anyone was actually able to earn more money. Right. Um, the employment unemployment rate has only skyrocketed. But anyway, that's just one example. But permits going down. Um, this is from December 11th. Anti-fascist resistance heats up against Stop the Steel rallies and faces new challenges. This is a particularly in-the-moment kind of story about um, Antifa... Uh, is here, um, and um, and there are clashes, there are uh, parties, uh, their their opposition to stop the steel rallies by Trump supporters because they really are nothing else but Trump supporters. There are a lot of other things to sure, but in their in this capacity, they're Trump supporters. It's going to be really interesting if I'm actually able to get to the inauguration myself. I went last time. Um, that was when it had a very low turnout. You went to Trump's inauguration? Yes. Huh, I didn't know that. Not not the thing itself, of course, but on the periphery. Oh, where, yeah. Where there was the, uh, the quote-unquote riot, hey. uh, which only, only we only took up a block. But um, we'll go into how I participated, um, which wasn't uh, in the black block or anything. I was on the periphery of the black block, which was then on the periphery of the, ra- of the yeah. inauguration. Um, because there literally was a militarized DMZ a block long between the mall and everything else. But anyway, last weekend, oh yeah, and they quote Chumbawamba, day the Nazi died, were taken over the boardrooms and they're fat and full of pride, and they all came out of the woodwork on the day the Nazi died. Last weekend, major anti-fascist mobilizations took place across the so-called United States. They always do that, so-called <laughs> United States. The first to be called in the post-election period in the face of an agit- activated, angry, and energized far right. While the Trump administration's attempts to legally contest the election have so far resulted in failure, Trump has continued to rally his base around the conspiracy theory. There was another term that I preferred to conspiracy theory, but now it's leaked out of my head, unfortunately. Mm. It'll come again. At a later date. Fake news? No, not fake news. It was better. Um, it was kind of like constructed reality or, uh, or alternative reality, maybe. Okay. Um, but no, oh, it was like a narrative, disrupt, like disrupted narrative or alternative narrative or something that had to do with narrative. Because it isn't just like based on one singular idea, but just having a different narrative, yeah. constructed narrative about how the world works. In response, a coalition including MAGA supporters, white nationalists, militia members, and Proud Boys have organized ongoing rallies outside the state capitals. Last night, a POC-owned restaurant in Salem was vandalized by FASH. person caught on security cameras bears striking resemblance to Eric Owens. Just a quoted tweet. Twitter is, is very toxic. 
Oh yeah. Sometimes it's also it's used. Some of the toxic element is overblowing things by like when you're reporting every instance of safe bash vandalism. Yeah. It makes it seem like an enormously widespread problem that must like that's the most important thing, and that's why there are some Ooh. either anarchists or activists who think like this is the priority, posing and fighting our, your local fash, okay. and not pushing back against say the liberal government or or anything like that. Or doing eviction defense, which of course is on the agenda too. But then it's like the laundry list just keeps going on. Uh, in several instances, far right rallies in support of Trump over the past several weeks have ended in violence. In Washington, D.C., after the millions MAGA march in mid November, hundreds of drunken Proud Boys attacked Black Lives Matter. <laughs> Do they put in drunken? Or they, I don't know. Maybe they just acted drunk. Attacked Black Lives Matter and anti-fascist counter-protesters, which unfortunately were Are very... you able to get a group of Proud Boys together without... Getting them drunk? With, yeah. Maybe not. I don't know. Some of them have actually said, like, oh, I just want to get drunk with the boys. Like, this is just my drinking To be group. completely honest, Proud Boys seem very similar in vibe to my fraternity, yeah. except Proud Boys are a fraternity dedicated to a, a not-so-good idea. Mm-hmm. Saving Western masculinity as they put it last weekend in olympia washington this dynamic came to a head as a far-right trump supporter opened fire on counter protesters injuring one this coddling and facilitation of violent far-right groups flies in the face of months of outright brutal counterinsurgency attacks that militarized police and the national guard more importantly a flood of heavy charges against protesters of various types what the wave of far-right rallies has shown, once again, is that when the far-right riots, attacks people in the street, destroys property, shoots people dead, or runs them over cars, the police do not deploy tear gas, send in the military, or set people up on trumped-up charges. The reason for this is simple. The state is using far-right as an auxiliary force of extra-legal counterinsurgency. This is their position in hot take. Completely, like, it's it's a section of it. It's something to consider. It's something that's part of the milieu. It's not the only thing going on. They just let them go. They let them play. They let things play out, you know, the state. And you could kind of make a case of rethinking the Minneapolis stuff that they let the, the young people riot for three days and beyond to, A, get it out of their system, so to speak, knowing that all of these moderate to liberal to, you know, community groups will clean things up, that they can always oppose any reform efforts later as a block. Uh, they'll always have their clout. And they're a very strong interest group, the police are. But not just the police. There's also so many police supporters, even passive ones. There's not just back the blue. There is, you know an army of, of property owners who don't want to see, miss the fact that everything that was torched in Minneapolis was a corporate target Ooh. or some pawn shop. It wasn't the minority-owned businesses were untouched and local bookstore and all those things. It wasn't the city. It was a particular type of city, a vision of the city that is corporate, commercial, and human. In the face of this, anti-fascists face an uphill battle. On one side is a highly militarized police force already activated and flush with resources in the wake of the rebellion, and on the other, an activated far-right furious over losing their election. Moreover, many liberals and progressives have largely checked out, content to allow Biden to take the reins of power and turn the country to normal. 
In moving forward, anti-fascists must continue to build growing coalitions and overall regional capacity, networks of information sharing, trust, and the ability to support continued struggle. This building must also be coupled with continued outreach and political education, blah, 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 on why a post-Trump world doesn't signal the end of a fascist threat. Lastly, as anarchists and autonomous, we can't solely and only dictate ourselves by countering the far right, losing sight of building our larger movement and its infrastructure, its dual power building. Doing so in this critical time would mean losing all the gains that we've made in the last four years. That was really hard to measure those gains, but I think um, the fact that there is no kind of organized far right, mm-hmm. as far as like there, there, there are these rallies that are just Trump based. Yeah, but they're never going to. There's never going to be some rally for legislation of some type well, where they all show up. Well, let's just hope that uh, Trump doesn't form his own party out of the ashes of the Republican Party. Well, if they do, be- that would actually be better because that would split any electoral power that Republicans would have. Yeah, I mean that would be that would be great. But that's the kind of thing where it's like, see, Democrats would love splitting on the right, and then they do everything in their power to make sure. They don't lose their left wing because that would lower their electoral power. And, and again, their left wing believes that, maybe rightfully, to such an extent that they will never leave the Dems. We yeah. must primary the Dems. We must stay Dems. So we are, quote unquote, have a side that can overpower yeah. the Republicans should they split if they ever do. But past decade has shown they don't. Even when half of them are "quote unquote" crazy and going like the, the Tea Party, it wasn't a real party. They didn't split off, right? Right. It was just a caucus within the Republicans. So similarly, you'll have a QAnon caucus in the Republicans. Oh God, and they will not split. There's not going to be a new party. So as much as like that's an interesting idea, I'm saying I'm saying past experience doesn't. There's no precedent for that. Just as, like, there's no precedent for forming a new third party. So many say they're going to do it or they want it to happen. But then there's this fear of, like, but then the Dems will lose more races in Congress kind of thing. Even though that when the third party runs, it will be in these districts, which is exactly the same strategy the progressives have. We were talking about this, how it's like the underpants gnomes of, like, Step, you know, they have their revolution plan is step one, primary Democrats, step two, ah. step three, political revolution. <laughs> Maybe I'm not saying, I don't want to imply that, say, as far lefties seem to have a better three steps, though I think at least step two is more defined as step one, build dual power. Step two, oppose the government. Step three, political revolution. Mm. Oppose the status quo, meaning the Democrats. Olympia, Washington. Um, oh, yeah, okay, so that's that's the end of it. The rest is just kind of um, tweet reporting uh, from different actions. Now for the kind of, from the other side, but also explaining the strategy and the tactics at work with, the, with, Ant, with Antifa and what Antifa does. Mm. This is from Reason Magazine. This is part of the billionaire Koch brother media right. empire, if you didn't know. Um, but they sometimes have actual kind of moderate libertarians that are kind of sort of not horrible. But they're mostly just anti-socialist propaganda 
but also, but sometimes they're not doing just that or anti-left stuff. But here's an interesting title. Um, and this is covering the Portland protests particularly. So this is from October. The conservative trans woman who went undercover with Antifa in Portland. This was filed by Nancy Rommelman. Aaron Smith was at a GOP election watch party at Twitter headquarters in San Fran on November 8th of 2016. For the one-time deputy vice chair of communications for the city Republican Party, it should have been a time of jubilation. As soon as they announced Trump the presumptive winner, we're told, hey, there's a mob of protesters out front, says Smith, who stepped outside to find the Fran cops being pushed back by a crowd, some in head-to-toe black, clothes, helmets, face masks. A trans woman, conservative, and former tugboat captain who says she's a weird activist analyst type person right now. Mm. Smith soon became galvanized to find out more about a group that dressed as revolutionaries and took their fight to the streets. What was animating them? Trump animus? The romance of revolution? The boredom and frustration of COVID sequestration? An unfocused desire to F shit up? Mm. Let's just consider for a moment the conservative trans woman right. who was a former tugboat captain. <laughs> Maybe they were male then. I'm not sure. This article does not divulge anything about what this person's actually about, but there's, but you can kind of infer that a kind of status quo mentality of like, I'm doing okay. So what is all these? What are these people mad yeah, like, about? I'm one what, of the what? good ones. Yes, like, like yeah. the Bar Blair White yeah, deal. Yeah, like, right. You know, there's a little bit of that uh, as far as being trans is concerned, but as far as just being the deputy vice chair of communications for the Republican Party, being unaware of why anyone would be upset with them. <laughs> That's the gist I'm getting from that paragraph about, like, I was galvanized to learn that people didn't like Trump. It takes a special moral blindness to see setting fires, breaking windows, and threatening journalists as the road to justice. I've seen this moral blindness rise among with the violence in Portland. Young activists have told me frankly that they don't give a F if someone working in the basement of the police station burns to death because, hey, she chose to work there. I've seen activists cheer the murder of a member of the conservative group Patriot Prayer. You cannot employ the violence of your perceived enemies and expect your revolution to end in peace. Even though they're not directly murdering anyone. So that's kind of a difference, too. What Smith has experienced has not been peaceful. She's had friends beaten up by Antifa. She's been threatened herself. It made her curious. This summer, she decided to find out more by going undercover with the Black Bloc anarchists in Portland. I went out with Smith several nights, and while I could not follow her directly, Black Bloc avoids having those outside of its ranks interview or photograph them. I was able to, and this just shows, perhaps, maybe it, it's a hint, that it's pretty easy to infiltrate yeah. Uh, or at least go to an Antifa action, which is maybe a little too bad, so sad, um, that it was this easy for this conservative trans woman. But maybe if she was trans, it made it easier. Yeah. But that's just using, well, Id her identity. Yeah, Idpol. After one such night, Smith and I sat over a couple of hard seltzers and discussed why, why God, <laughs> and she decided to infiltrate the black block and what she found. So here now it goes to an interview style. Would you like, do you have it up? What did you know about Antifa when you first encountered them in San Fran? I had a vague idea about Antifa was, but it, was, it wasn't nearly as big a deal as it was is now, outside of maybe Berkeley or Seattle. 
I'd had friends who got attacked at the Trump rally they tried to hold in San Jose. I'd had a year of watching what happened. That happened. And basically, I don't like bullies. So I started showing up at these things, at rallies and protests and places where my friends were getting beaten up. Because, you know, that's the beginning and end of bullying right. behavior, right? It's not economic exploitation. It's not yeah, locking kids in cages. Anything else. It's All not locking kids in cages, yeah. Yeah, it's just oh, they beat up people they disagree with. That that's all they do. They th- they got they threw hands on someone I knew. Yeah, and this makes them the bullies. They're just they're 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 the real Nazis. Yeah, I had a year of watching that happen. Basically, yeah, I don't like bullies. So I started showing up at these things, at rallies and protests, and this is spoken like someone who has truly never been bullied before. Yeah, and someone who was very heavily bullied as a kid. This infuriates me. Oh, definitely. And it makes me want to throw hands. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm an adult now. And uh, and I have confidence to stand up for myself, which I did not in the past. It felt like in 2016, everything really changed in the Bay Area. It stopped being a care- so carefree. In a sense, everything started, you know, all those homeless people, that spiking homeless uh, housing costs. It was carefree before. Yeah. Everything just started kind of feeling like it was for keeps. April in 2017 was the first rally I went to in Berkeley. This was a Trump MAGA rally. I started live streaming in June, and I got to be pretty good at talking to people from the other side. The first time I ever actually dressed in black and put on a mask on and tried to slip into the block was last weekend. It was a little scary because I'd faced them down so much. I'm like, I'm going to dress in black and slip in. I, I don't know how this is possible because yeah. everything about a black block is organized beforehand where – if you're not in an affinity group, you're not in it. Right. Like you, you know, you don't, you don't just join a black block in the moment. That's why I don't prepare. Like if I go to DC, I'm not blocking up because right. unless I know I'm going with a group that is blocking. Exactly. But, Cause you don't do these things alone. Then you are just a punk vandalizing property. Yeah. It's not as a political act. It's not, you're not doing it safely. You're going to get scooped up or attacked or stabbed by MAGA chuds. Oh, yeah, yeah. So th- there's a picture of her, and she's definitely, like, very well passing, by the way. Right. Very much a Blair White, uh, Blair White type, I guess. And um, so here, here's her tweet, because um, tweets are always uh, places where you feel calm. This is a strange, ideologically confusing moment for me. This is a trans Trump supporter surrounded by Trump protesters in Berkeley. I'm assuming these details mainly because of the scene that was taking place when I walked up. She was defending herself against a lot of loud, angry criticism and accusations that she was portraying her own cause. She also had a hat on, which several members of the crowd kept knocking off her head. Then at some point, even though we hadn't spoken, she looked over me and shrugged. And that's when I took this picture. Sarah shrugging, by the way. I never saw her get visibly angry or raise her voice. I don't doubt that she might have attended the protest mainly to upset liberals and perhaps to make the protesters look unreasonable, thus a troll. Yeah. If so, it seemed to work. I don't have much else to say about it. Like many things that happen in Berkeley. So at the end of the day, she doesn't really care. She doesn't like bullies. Right. And thus she's going to troll and make them basically agitate. The, the reason I would be reading this in the first place Here, let me comes poke later. you with a stick so I can record yeah. your reaction but, 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 and but say the, how crazy you are for reacting. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe I should skip ahead. And there's no bigger stick than basically serving the empire and mm-hmm. thinking that you're morally superior. Exactly. How organized are things on the inside? 
the, there are different types of block organization styles. The building block of Antifa is what's called the Infinity Group. People you live and work with and trust and know in real life, which would include you, uh, Miss Fancy Pants. All the planning is done within that closed block, and they don't let anyone know what they're going to do. Need to know basis. I don't. I didn't know what they were going to burn. I didn't know they were going to burn the Portland Police Association when I joined. What I did was put a call out that said, anyone show up in black that night at this place and you can join the action. That's called a semi-open block. The planning is done within the closed group, but anyone who's dressed in black can come join the action. If you know what you're looking for, you can spot affinity groups that are working together. One thing they'll do sometimes is have written agreements with other protest organizations who aren't in the block. I know of one from Berkeley that illustrates this. We agree that not one... We agree not to take pictures of anyone in Antifa. It will say that literally in writing, so everyone's working together. It's like a combined arms type thing, almost like the military. We work together, and we're mutually reinforcing. Now, it's strange that her point of reference there is they're working together, just like the military. <sighs> That's the only other institution she probably knows where people are cooperative. Yeah. Um, when I was in a block just the one time, we also had an agreement with, we were basically acting as security for an immigrants group. And so we had an agreement with them. Yeah. So your first night with them, you burn the Portland Police Association. We get to the Portland Police Association and immediately they blockade both ends of the street. They built the shield wall and they're hammering the door open. I went over and I'm standing in the block and as they're breaking the door down, it took them a little while longer than I thought. They could have found a better way to breach the building, but they had hammers and pry bars, and they pry it open and pry the plywood back, and they pour fuel and light a fire and start burning stuff. Strategically, what they're doing is they're forcing a, dile to a dilemma action. Okay, here, here's the um, content I All right. liked, I guess. They're forcing a dilemma action. A dilemma action is when you put your opponent in a no-win situation. Your enemy has to react. If they don't react, they look weak. If they do react... They have to react in a certain way where it looks like it's an overreaction. Now, it's funny. She's describing exactly what she just, like, she does. Yeah. Or any agitator to Antifa. Yeah. Or any manga chat or whatever. It's like, that's why I'm like, okay, this isn't just her kvetching about Antifa. It's, there's, there's an actual, like, mask off kind of stuff. You know? Yeah. When the feds were in Portland, they were presented as overreaching, a presentation helped by innumerable people with press written across their clothing, flooding the Internet with images that presented protesters wholly as victims of an authoritarian regime. Because you can't just consider that possibility at all, could you? Right. And that's an inconceivable possibility. That couldn't possibly be true. And anyone saying that has to be lying. Because, as the programming goes, America is the most free oh, of country course. in the world. Now, perhaps by some metrics that is true, but that does not mean that we do not have an authoritarian government yeah. when it comes down to freedom. Because, like, the, the whole, like, the, there's a right-wing conceit that, like, leftists are free to do whatever they want. Why do they want to impose their way of life on me? I'm like, well, that's completely false. Capitalism imposes its way of life on me every day. Capitalism imposes wanna... its way of life on you. I'm trying to liberate you. But let's say they like being uh, having boss's foot on their neck, yeah. or paying uh, outrageous rent, or something like that. something basic example. But I'm just thinking, 
that what choice do we really have when you must work for a living? Like the capitalist way of life is you must give your labor time to make capitalist value in some way or another. Mm -hmm. Even nonprofits are making capitalist value because they are making conditions a little better, which allows the business, the commerce to continue. Right. And that goes for any government policy and that goes for anything. You know, the government is not neutral in this. It is pro capitalist commerce, not socialist commerce, because there's no in America, at least there's no com there's no co-op program. I think there's a little bit of that small business administration. I think there was it was nestled in as an amendment from Sanders or like, you know, separate money for co-ops, but just, just nothing. You know, it's, it's not effective. That's what I mean. So meaning they're able to provoke the police into taking the bait. Yeah, basically they're baiting the police into overreacting. Now, sometimes the police don't overreact. They do, in fact, just do nothing. In which case, it depends on what the action is, but mostly the action is marching down the street. Yeah. And that's usually it. Like, if the police don't get in the way, if they do not block or try to enforce traffic laws, the march goes unimpeded, no property is destroyed. This is basically every action I've ever been in. Yeah. Do you know the actions where property was destroyed, like on J20 when Trump inauguration, mm. right? The black block starts breaking stuff when the police say, you can't march. You don't have any rights today. It, yeah. was, it was really a one or the other. Well, it becomes a riot when the police provoke it into becoming a riot. And that is the left, say, Democracy Now! perspective, which is, People want to peacefully protest. That is the default. And the police shot rubber bullets at them in tear mm -hmm. gas when they didn't leave or disperse or they wanted to continue marching. And this is usually the police or the state plans to disrupt said march. They do not want it to happen because it's not, it doesn't have the right messaging. It doesn't, or it's not led by the sanctioned groups. So how did you feel when the police station was on fire? It was pretty wild, actually. Uh, right when the fire was lit, the police announced, this is a riot, and they, the Black Bloc, started marching. For me, it was really kind of amazing because they were incredibly proficient. This was 600 to 700 people. They moved a group of people through the city in close order, quickly and efficiently, and attacked a target, caught it on fire, and then escaped from the police. I describe it as an open-source networked insurgency. They were incredibly efficient. So she, she does praise them a little bit, so it is, and that's why I'm like, okay, this is worth reading. <laughs> they hit a target and vanished into the city and got away. Basically, they're like skirmishers. They come in, they attack the cops, they get out. And if it goes for a certain type of violence, a mid-level violence, most people aren't practiced in violence, and what they'll do is they'll either back down or they'll overreact. And if it basically is a group, as a group, does the equivalent of just pushing someone on the shoulder again and again. Yes, so they keep it as simmer. Yes, it's very tricky to react to people because uh, because people get angry. If you just go in public and pick someone and start pushing them, if you get keep pushing them, they're going to slug you. It's just how it's going to work at the individual level, but also at the group level too. I'm also speaking metaphorically in a sense. Of course, if you hit them, they're going to fall down and go, oh God, you're violent, you're a Nazi. What they're intending to do is use that level of violence that will scare people enough to back down. The radical left learned this in the 70s that killing people is bad PR. A body count is horrible. So we're not going to see another weather underground. No, not at this point. 
They've learned and adapted. What they want to do is make it difficult for people they don't like to organize. Now, they don't like was put in, like, uh, brackets. So it, you could take that out and say they, they want to make it difficult for people to organize. Uh, no, they love it when people organize. They just don't like when Nazis organize. Exactly. Well, we don't like the organized violence of the state. <laughs> and that's why police are a target for them in a video game. And that's really the two responses. Most people don't know how to handle that mid-level force. So they either back down or they slug people. It's either way or when. When they don't know what you're looking at, you see a lot of random rage-filled kids. You sometimes wonder, and this is the interviewer, do they even know how to formulate a plan? But you go out with them in a few nights and you understand that they are, in fact, working together. It's really interesting. I did a breakdown of the Grant Park video, the tech they had, and that was freaking incredibly sophisticated. This is Grant Park in Chicago. They, uh, When they attacked the statue and put, like, 50 police officers in the hospital... Tonight was so much more, so much like this in terms of operational sophistication, how coordinated everything was. But it wasn't centralized, said the interviewer. Let me explain that a little more. People keep looking for a chain of command, and you don't necessarily need that. As long as everyone understands the basic level of instruction, it works. People need to actually take the instructions, though. That's something that, um, say, the narcissistic do not do. What are the basics? Basically, um, don't talk about it. Don't photograph people's faces. Uh, what did you see? I didn't see uh, anything. Is a chant you'll hear. Uh, you can go to websites like CrimeThink. We'll do that later. And they'll have a lot of breakdown of tactics. It's an anarchist website. It's open source network insurgency, not so much a chain of command. People think Antifa and they picture people in black. Antifa is bigger than that. A black block is a tactic. Dressing in black, it's a tactic. You don't have to dress in black to be Antifa. You don't even have to hit the streets. There are people who work in tech, hackers who never hit the streets, and they're still Antifa. The media play these little word games. Oh, Antifa doesn't exist. Yes and no. It's not an organization where you have to sign up for a membership. It's one of those things where it's just a loose-knit network of people. Whose message can be a sweet song, not just for young people looking for identity or those for whom COVID-19 has cooped up, but anyone wanting to be a part of what they see as a fighting for force for justice. And again, this, this, these are right libertarians who don't take lefties at face value. It's like they say they're for this, but really they're the bullies. People want to fight through things. I first heard of Crying Fink in 2000. I've got their seminal work, Days of War, Nights of Love. I've got it inscribed, Love and Insurrection. It's anarchist stuff. I'm not an anarchist or a communist or anything like that. But it is a siren song. Young people, they sense that something's wrong and they want to fight. That's a human instinct. Frankis Fuyama talks about it. People want to struggle. And if everything is fine, they'll struggle against democracy. But, Mike, is everything fine? <laughs> this is where I'm like, where is this woman coming from? Like, well, they operate under the assumption that the status quo is, is good and yes. needs to be maintained and is acting in the way that it yes. claims to act. And it's the best possible world, and it's ruling class ideology, capitalist realism. There is no good alternative. Um, to propose or fight for anything else makes you wrong by default. I understand where some of these things come from. People want community and want to feel like they're fighting. That's why we love Star Wars. We love the underdog fighting. And I think young people that don't have a network, it's just something very intoxicating. 
I mean, speaking of speaking of Star Wars, really. I have been on a real Star Wars binger the past like couple of days. I've been watching lots of videos about Star Wars. I've been me too. Well, I've been fascinated in uh, Palpatine and how Palpatine was able to subvert a democratic process and consolidate the Republic into the Empire. And I don't know. I kind of have been watching Star Wars critically and trying to compare it to the world that we live in. Well, there's a lot of conceits with that. I mean, if you actually watch all of Clone Wars, Mm -hmm. and this is a discussion super nerds like us have, (laughs) is, um, and and our hour is quickly going away from us, but the there's so many, like, moments where the plan could unravel. Right. And it doesn't, or there's a lot of close calls. And I think that's where, like, the discussion of the content is that it alternates or oscillates between the position that he's planned everything out. It's a super mega plan where he just knows what's going to happen because right. of the forest. Yeah. And then there's this, there's all of these things that could screw it up and don't, or he's able to counter them as they come up. And so he doesn't really have like all the steps planned out, but he does have a overall framework for right. start a war consolidate power during it start a proxy war proxy where he war, is yes. in where he is actually in control of both, both sides, sides which america has done from time to time uh, yeah, like cia backed forces like fighting, in uh fbi backed forces yeah but my my big gripe with star wars though just just to finish off sure, the star sure. wars thing is because otherwise i don't find palpatine the interesting part of any of that but uh well, it's that yeah. it's on such a an accelerated time scale of the um, the civilizations rising and falling and rising again within like yeah, generation. a generation or yeah. two. Yeah, that's what's kind of weird about it. Where like the whole like yeah, yeah, it's like fifteen years has passed, and apparently the Jedi are now just legend. Right. It's like well, actually, as far as communism in America is concerned. It's like, yeah, there was a communist party that was actually cloud and organizing half of Chicago, not yeah. half, but a whole neighborhoods in Chicago. And then 15 years later, it's like they were a myth. Oh, there's, yeah. once upon a time, there were these mythic socialists and, and you know, and, and hmm. the government says they're everywhere. The liberals, the biggest lie or the, the thing that also is like a stab in the back from liberals is that, see, the liberal reaction to the McCarthy era was to say – you're overreacting. There is no communist threat. There are no communists whatsoever, in fact. Right. And that's like, that hurts even more. Yeah. There's one thing to be opposed and to say these communists are destroying America. Like, well, we kind of do. But then liberals say, no, no, no. There are no socialists. That hurts even more. Yeah. You know, it's like, as a green, I feel that sometimes where it's like, no, no, no. There are, there, these greens don't even exist. There are no greens. <laughs> um, hello. We're right here. Yeah. <clears throat> What are the ages of the people you're hanging out with? Anywhere from 20s to 30s. Do you have any idea what they do for work? In the Bay Area, we've had people arrested that were physicists. Look up Freddie Martinez. He was arrested for punching some guy in Berkeley. And Freddie Martinez, uh, I think that's the guy who punched someone with a block, actually. Uh, Freddie Martinez was the director of the Lucy Parsons Lab. I know there's another guy who was a John Hopkins grad. You can dismiss them as a bunch of losers, but I've seen some incredibly smart people. Uh, The interviewer. I've told some demonstrators mouthing off to me to read Utopia or Auschwitz about the 1968 generation in Germany who were livid with their Nazi collaborating parents and were going to build a better society. 
The movement became progressively less peaceful and eventually took to bombing and murdering people. Antifa right now is able to keep things at a simmer and provoke others into behaving badly. But history tells us things usually don't stay at a simmer. Do we get to skip the part where people are building bombs in basements in Portland? Well, they are making those primitive small IEDs made out of commercial-grade fireworks. They're roughly about the power of a police flashbang. I've had to go you right... You mean we're throwing fireworks? Yes. Or the equivalent of flashbangs, which is not lethal as it kind of gets. I mean, they're really shocking, and, uh, you know, I don't. no one likes them. I've had them go off right next to me, and you feel it. You feel the heat wave hit you. It is a big thing for them. Yes, but you didn't, didn't kill you. Right. Is there a, is they have convinced themselves that they're doing something good? They're very big about trying to maintain, at least in their eyes, the moral high ground. Part of that is not killing people. Something that our government does not follow. Right. Jesus Christ. Uh, they want that more high ground and they construct it. Yes. Oh, you totally don't construct it. And that's kind well, of because what... Because we have it. We do have the mor- moral high ground because we want to build a better society. And not and kill they, people who are doing it. And they would prefer to ignore the bad that our society does. I hate to break this to you, but anyone joking about killing people with guillotines are just irony-pilled workers. Right. They're not actually want to kill Bezos or whatever. We just want to expropriate property. <laughs> but that is... As far as the establishment is concerned, just as bad as killing someone. Yeah. Taking away someone's hard-earned income or livelihood, you might as well be killing them. Oh, why is that? Oh, because our system requires us to work or we starve. Yeah. And that's the, that's, that's the logic loop I go through whenever I'm outraged about the system. Do you see Antifa? And that's and that's another thing about Palpatine. You know, if if the if the Republic wasn't so corruptible, if the institutions weren't so calcified, if you didn't have capitalism run amok in the in the galaxy. Well, they had uh, Anakin was a slave. They had slavery. Yeah. Like I was what like Anakin could have easily become like a communist revolutionary who wanted to yeah. who saw the flaws in the Republic and wanted to overthrow it and replace it with something better. It's why he was mad at the Council. I mean, it, it's yeah. a subplot. In, in the Clone Wars, the animated show, which is seven seasons, and it only gets better with each season. Some people stop <laughs> after one or two because they literally had they, they had mining budget compared to what they had when they finished. Yeah. And now the what's his name, a Dave Martelli, I don't know, director of all of the animated stuff for Disney now, um, or at least the Star Wars properties, and, and now he has a mega budget, so <laughs> now he can do kind of much whatever he wants. I think the worst case is if they weaken the police, they don't go away because then the police are still there and they'll be able to target the normal law-abiding people. Because that's totally something we want to do, right? Right. It's what we have. We don't. It's what we have in San Francisco. It's anarcho-tyranny. Can you grow for me? It's like the law really only applies to people that are trying to follow the law. Now, now that's something every right-winger kind of believes, where it's just like the the thing they were really aggrieved about is I'm a law-abiding person. Just following the rules of capitalism, being a good capitalist, and following the law. And here's all these people on the fringes and stuff that aren't. Right. And they're getting away with it. Why am I following the rules? Well, you are middle class, so you're obviously benefiting. That's what you get for following the rules, <laughs> I guess. Right. Well, of course, you know, no, no, they're referring to all the people who are maybe richer than them that are breaking the law. Which, yes, I wonder why that would be. 
So I wouldn't say the majority of people in Portland are sympathetic to Antifa, but you've got a lot of people that either are empathetic or don't think it matters or they're scared. But you put all those people together, maybe you have a majority. There's a woman running for mayor who is openly pro-Antifa, a woman who is photographed wearing a shirt with Chairman Mao's face on it. It could be that Portland is the place where Antifa goes Main Street. I think there are many areas they already there. I don't think Antifa will get out there and start dressing police uniforms and be the official police. I think they'll always stay kind of paramilitary. But the police are weakened to the point where they can barely oppose Antifa now. Well, they would form community-organized local militias that are capable of defending where they live. Well... Moderates and right-wingers do not understand what our actual vision for the future is. Mm -hmm. And that is why every fifth episode, I talk about Rojava. Rojava is kind of our model right now. Is it perfect? Okay. Of course not. But they're doing the things that basically we want to turn local government into. Yeah. And, and we can, we're not going to cover it this time. In the future, I'll have another Rojava story for you. Uh, literally about neighborhood governance and their structure. Hey. Um, but it fits into the direct where, where the direct action goes to. It does have a purpose. It does have an endpoint. The endpoint is not just to beat everyone up who disagrees with us. That is the strongman. The endpoint strong man. is to make a better world. Yes, that we is. We can make a better world. Right, right. But th they don't know what a better world is, right? Because right. there's no alternative to capitalism. <laughs> but the alternative right. is a kind of communalism. Yeah. Just the last paragraph here. Uh, so the police go away. It's operate conditioning. If every time I grabbed this hard seltzer, I got shocked. After a while, I would stop grabbing it. And that's basically how they operate. It's not so much a matter of ruling the whole city. It's the sense that Antifa, or liberating it, uh, but that Antifa moves the Overton window. If this person is advocating for something we don't agree with, we can go punish them, and we can punish their friends and family. It's self-censorship. If the cops are a token force now, and they can't stop anyone, and Antifa can destroy your life, then people are going to know that. Now, of course, this applies to the state and corporations. Yeah. And it's like, do you don't think a corporation could destroy someone's life? Right. Uh, they do it every minute of the day. Or it's what keeps the workers in line. It keeps us from organizing. Mm -hmm. It keeps us from, say, um, more people from going postal. Or going postal is the end point of that, where you literally know they'll destroy your life, so you destroy your own life. It's the only choice you have. It's the only thing you have control over. That or um, decide you're going to just starve to death, I guess, or 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 higher suicide rates. Yeah. So at the end of the day, to me, this is where the moral high ground comes in. Right wingers just want people to kill kill themselves. <laughs> Can't cut it. Don't not making it. Don't fit in. Kill yourself. It's yeah. sad, but doesn't affect me. Mm. Yeah. And and yeah, just. Goes, goes, goes. Okay. Um, we have a little bit left of the hour. Is there any kind of nerd thing you'd like to discuss? Hmm. Well, we still have uh, able to. Uh, I can explain that in the next hour, we will hit on all the things that she kind of hit on, which was first an account of the Battle of Grant Park and what occurred in Grant Park in Chicago, then a list of things anarchists should be doing, and then a step-by-step -step guide and direct action from Crimefink that she mentioned. So hmm. basically, we're going to go down the rabbit hole. We have someone on the outside talking about Antifa's activities and Crimefink, and now we're, and we'll go down the rabbit hole to what the nuts and bolts and as well as the account of Grant Park and right. from, a, from an Antifa perspective talking about their own actions. 
Uh, all right, so let's. Uh, what are you watching besides? Uh, are you watching anything besides Star Wars stuff? I haven't caught the rest of Mandalorian because I have to wait for an opening. Um, my parents. So I know. did. I finished the Mandalorian, and that is what triggered my uh, Star Wars mm-hmm. kind of. Sure. Uh, well, yeah. When this, when you, when you finish the season of something, and then you go back to past content. Yeah. I was kind of doing that by watching just the middle of the Mandalorian season. Mm. I like seeing Bo-Katan again. Oh, yeah, Bo-Katan's um, cool. But it's kind of like a Member Berries kind of show. It's like, yeah. remember this, remember that, remember this, remember that. Um, but but using, you know... I've, I've been uh, interested in uh, how the old continuity has become Legends, and now it is the job of anyone who works on a Star Wars project to kind of sift through all of the contents within legends and decide what they want to become canon. And then at that point, it's like legends is not even really its own thing. And what is legends? What is canon? Kind of the line kind of blurs. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. There's been a few videos um, about how, when it comes to all the new Disney star Wars content, it's all going to ignore the actual movies. Hmm. The movies are not going to take a like a, a play a part, and in fact, now it the, is the me. sequel trilogy. That's what I'm referring yeah. to. Like it's well, they, they now it's, almost, it's all now it's almost jarring, and it doesn't fit well, at yeah, all. Whenever cl- I do encounter it, so they cleared the old canon to make way for these new movies, and then they realized, oh yeah, no one likes these new movies, and everyone likes the old canon. So now it's them sifting through the old canon, finding they're putting it into the new canon. And then, like, kind of ignoring the. Uh, For the record, I enjoyed movies. Last Jedi. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed. I would say I enjoyed all three of the uh, the sequel movies. Like they're fun popcorn movies, and I wasn't entirely radicalized yet when I saw them, so okay. I didn't see them as the propaganda. That it, they it's are. always interesting to revisit. Um, past movies or watch other movies post practicalization mm-hmm. um, oh, I want to do a some, some lose their magic completely others are just oh this is actually better or more interesting I think um, one of my big projects that I would like to do is watch the movie Iron Man like the first Iron Man movie sure. and take notes because I I used to love that movie I was a huge MCU fan and now I kind of like don't care have you watched um i I know if it's big joel or there's um some other bread tubers that do Hmm. just the overthinking media analysis from a leftist perspective i haven't Um, i would love to check those out forget his name i'll I'll do a link in the show notes slash website which is i don't know if it's big joel or something of that nature but he he did one episode was about like talking dog movies are kind of slavery analogs <laughs> um, because you basically have sentient creatures yeah. who can talk and, but then they have a slave mentality of like there there's the good owners. Yeah. And I love my master. And the, and the my conflict, master the conflict, is my favorite person. The conflict is the bad owners. And that's kind of how I came at, uh, come at uh, toy story after the second movie. And that's why I can't enjoy the toy story anymore. Or even, even after the second one post age of 13, I yeah. just, I didn't like the third one, actually. I thought that I just don't like where this goes mm-hmm. or just I can't think about it this way anymore as an adult. I thought like, that. So 
it kind of freaked me out thinking about alive toys as a kid even uh, I, I turned my yeah. brain. I had to turn my brain off as a kid to enjoy Toy Story before. Mm. Now that I especially will not turn my brain off, then um, it just becomes just I, I don't like it. That's true. Um, well, I Iron Man is. I'm just thinking about how fantastic uh, of a propaganda tool it is that the lead figure of Tony Stark is the. CEO capitalist who is in charge of this company and they're able to get you to see, Oh, Tony Stark is the genius billionaire who uh, designs all the things that his company makes. He does all the things he creates the value of the company and no, he, that, that's in the Marvel universe. You never see a single worker do anything. Exactly. It's they're they're completely absent. And it's what is the public doing? Who what what is like the what is that yeah, you're saving? What is the rest of Stark industry? What is the rest of Stark Industries doing? doing like yeah. they show one worker, and basically it's uh, they show the Jeff Bridges character telling a worker saying, "Hey, build this thing that Tony Stark built." And then the worker's saying, I can't do that. It's impossible. And yeah. I'm saying, Tony Stark built that yeah, in a yeah. cave with scraps. These workers are I'm terrible. not Tony Stark. So the um, at least in like the kid, kitty um, animated uh, Iron Man Armored Adventures, there's actually some, just a few episodes where the board appears. Really? And they're at least like they're concerned with staying. And it's like these military projects are boondoggles. They're losing this right. money. Tony is talking about making medical devices and tech like that. And that's great he's a genius we want him in yeah. charge and it basically becomes a battle of who's the good ceo and the bad one but at least there's like a board who's a concerned with profit <laughs> yeah and at least at least a little bit more honest um and then what i also think is funny is that tony stark just unilaterally decides oh yeah pepper Potts is now in charge of all of stark industries yeah. even though they have absolutely no Real she was his relevant. assistant. Exactly. Assistant, not not a vice president, not a, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's that's the contradiction of, like, you're telling stories about just cliques of people. Yeah. And not organizations. Organizations yeah. do not. And when they do, they're usually nefarious. Villains organize. <laughs> Villains organize. True. Heroes so, uh, make affinity groups. Okay. And there's, back to Ryan Erica's theory. Praxis. <laughs>
back to anarchist practice. Here's, here's, here's a just straightforward from the, I think it's more blog and YouTube channel, the fifth column, uh, which I think is like a, a kind of a hillbilly leftist kind of channel. It's a guy. It's oh yeah. Every day. Oh, uh, Trey Crowder. Is that the one? I, that, yeah. That's his name. There he is. So, but this is written. Um, he has, I guess other blog, uh, people write for him, uh, with him and stuff by Justin King. 11 things every anarchist should be doing. Now, this is a good article because it includes counterfactuals for objections other types of anarchists would have. To So this is more of a any type of anarchist, every type, hmm. every anarchist should be doing. Oh, so this is where they, they try to say ANCAPs are... Not real anarchists, yes. Yeah. Anarchism. It'll happen if we just wish for it hard enough, right? Or should we begin taking concrete steps to hasten its arrival? If you believe anarchism will suddenly appear as a viable society because we want it to or because the inevitable collapse of the current unsustainable system will usher in, you're dismissed. Bringing about an idea as revolutionary as self-government will take work. For many of us, we are probably planting the seeds of a shade tree we will never have the pleasure of sitting under. The process must begin and it must continue. Below is a list of things every anarchist, regardless of hyphen, should begin engaging in. The activities will speed the arrival of anarchism or protect you during what will be a turbulent period of adjustment. Below the suggestions are anticipated objections or questions from various schools of thought. Now, of course, the thought that comes into my mind when talking about planting seeds of shade trees you'll never sit under, that's kind of what people in 68 probably thought, too. Yeah. And I'm like, well, what are the shade trees that we have that they planted? It w- it's not really the better world or a democratic socialism, but I, I suppose there are things that we have that they didn't. Cultural attributes, I mean, particularly segregation, I suppose. Okay, one thing is force multiply. One of the key elements of anarchism in anarchism is self-reliance. In some variations, it may be reliance on the, on the community. Force multiplication is a military concept, in fact but it applies to any other field of endeavor. The theory is the premise by which American Green Berets live. One one person teaches 10, who each teach 10, who each teach 10, and so on. Eventually, there is a viable resistance force in the country in which they are operating. By the fifth generation of this formula, the skills of the first person are now known by 100,000. Whatever your skill is, teach it. From gardens to gorillas, art to artillery, medicine to mathematics, it is the duty of every anarchist to become a Renaissance man or woman. Every time you teach a new skill, you are creating a better, stronger, more self-reliant anarchist or person. By extension, you are creating a better, stronger, more self-reliant movement. Number two, counter-economics. This goes beyond cryptocurrencies and black markets. Any dime you can deprive the powers of the state is a victory. That means buying locally, shopping at thrift stores, and through alternative channels whenever possible. It means lowering your rate of consumption of goods. It means avoiding large multinational chains whenever possible. It won't always be possible. Economics dictates that sometimes your wallet must come before your principles. Repair, reuse, and repurpose anything that's feasible. Starve the economy. But anarcho-capitalists suggest, I happen to find the business practices of Walmart to be a testament to the power of the free market. Why should I stop supporting them? The profits from your purchases aren't just taxed and thereby provide funding for the state. Large multinational corporations pay off government officials at every level through legal campaign contributions and through legal bribes. 
Your purchases fund the stranglehold of the government has on its people. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a message to anarcho-capitalists mm-hmm. um, that uh, it isn't just through taxes that you know government. Um, it's that government corporations are uh, one and the same, or at least they are intertwined. Uh, part three: Prepare for the worst. The transition from a world of nations to a stateless society will not be peaceful. Even if the catalyst for change begins peacefully, the perceived power vacuum will cause someone to step in and attempt to carve out a kingdom. You need to be prepared to defend yourself and your loved ones. Anarchists must prepare for the worst humanity has to offer so that eventually they can bring it to the best. This means learning about warfare, not about fighting in the streets with bottles and sticks. Message to the anarcho-pacifists. Wait, great. Does this mean I have to start reading The Art of War? Couldn't help the skim it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Or at least thinking. play a lot of strategy games, which probably isn't a good, um, I would not say. <laughs> it is not actual practice. Um, I mean, maybe getting in the mindset, but then you kind of need to go in the field and maybe play some paintball or something. Yeah. Uh, to actually put this stuff in practice. Do some war gaming. Hey, let's start a leftist paintball league. Uh, can I afford that? <laughs> that that's a It's not a cheap question. hobby. That's true. It's not a cheap hobby. Um, I, I mean, feel like it might even having us. real weapons is not, you know, I yeah. mean, it's kind of, well, yeah. the topic for a different time. Yeah. Uh, this is diamond. Okay. To pacifists. This is diametrically opposed to my ideology. They would say, I respect your wishes to die with your ideology intact. For the rest of us it is imperative that we are capable of violence at a greater level than those who would seek to place us back under the yoke of tyranny. Pretty cynical, but practical. Yeah. Get a job, start a business. Most would agree that anarchists are in a war for the very soul of humanity. We are attempting to wage that war against thousands of years of the entrenched belief that people require a ruler. Wars cost money. It doesn't matter if it's a spiritual, ideological, or physical war. Money greases the wheels of war machine. From feeding the homeless to funding direct action, money enables it. Economic self-sufficiency is required to continue the fight. Message to the anarcho-communists. I shouldn't have to pay just to live. Somebody will have to obtain the funding to achieve the society you want. If you, if not you, who? Also remember that in order for the workers of the world to unite, there must be workers. For this, even in, in a, say, the anarchist milieu uh, in Albany, um, there's a number of state workers and everybody kind of, there's a lot of so, uh, social workers um, kind of. So we're getting jobs in a profession usually a profession, that has to do with public welfare. Mm. Teach the children quietly. Now, this is what will make the right-wingers really upset and scared. Uh, this is a long game. It won't be one overnight. The next generation of anarchists is more important than the current. Each generation should become better than the last, and hopefully less toxic. We must not only encourage free thought and self-reliance in our own children, but we must encourage and give opportunities to young would-be anarchists. How often have you seen the person just beginning to explore the idea of freedom be mocked for completely explainable ignorance? None of us were born with an innate understanding of freedom. It's a path, and it's a long journey. When a newly minted anarchist is met with nothing but derision by those who should be encouraging her, she might abandon the belief. When a fledging anarchist asks a question and receives nothing but questions about whether or not they've read a philosopher X, he might simply vanish. Anarchism is not some esoteric belief system in which only the best and brightest may advance. 
It is for everyone. We must attempt to mentor those who would fight for freedom. So this is where in the re-theory or not, or I think the, it's, it's always a matter of having the better question, which is, well, the question is, we want to teach people theory, right? It's not that everyone must. See, there's that, there's that narcissistic, it's not my responsibility to teach you. Yeah. But if you want a communitarian or egalitarian society, no, it is your responsibility. Consider that. Look out for the downtrodden. It's extremely hard to convince people that anarchism would be anything other than a doggy dog world when most anarchists refuse to help their neighbor or even seek to persecute the less fortunate. It provides the opposition. I probably read that wrong. Provides the opposition with all of the ammunition they need to prove that to the average person, governments are needed to protect them from the evil people wanting to pounce. Economically disadvantaged people should be cared for as much as possible. When anarchists provide services the state should be providing, it demonstrates that social responsibility does not have to be forced through taxation. Prisoners are not only in need, but are in a special situation. They are already angry at the state and are quite literally a captive audience. Every effort should be made to reach out to the incarcerated. This is why many anarchist cliques create uh, pen pals, prison pen pals. Oh. Um, you write letters to prisoners. Anarcho-capitalists would say, um, why should I give additionally when I'm already taxed for these services? Hashtag taxation is theft. Response, if you don't, you're allowing the government to use your money and claim credit. However, if you are going, giving additionally, you can use that as a method of bringing up government inefficiency and the inherent violence of government. Any conversation with the press should include mention of having to... Any conversation with the press should include mention of having to pay for the same services twice because the government is corrupt and ineffective. Next step, stop being co-opted. In the last few months, we have witnessed left-leaning anarchists be co-opted by the Democratic Party in the U.S. and right-leaning anarchists co-opted by the Republicans. Anarchists are literally fighting in the streets while the benefits of the battles go to government entities. End it now. There should never be a situation when anarchists are waging war against others other anarchists even, on behalf of the state. So to both anarcho-communists and anarcho-capitalists, but they aren't the real anarchists. Well, they are more anarchistic than the p political parties. Are they more anarchistic than or uh, immigration by ICE? Those are now the only entities benefiting from this feud. Meanwhile, anarchists are painted as the criminals in the streets, only justifying more police presence. Form alliances with non-anarchists. All over the country, there are small pockets of people who believe government should only exist at the county level. These individuals are natural allies. Most sensible anarchists would agree that in a stateless society, local communities would have their own standards and methods of conducting themselves. These minarchists can easily exist in one area while being bordered by anarchist communities. But in our insurrectionist state, all status must die. <laughs> well, that's wonderful rhetoric, and it's the rhetoric of those who have never seen real violence or taken a life. Cooperation is always better than having another enemy. From a military standpoint, if these local government proponents are to be on one side or the other, wouldn't it be better to have them with anarchists? If they seek to expand their control or become totalitarian, they can be removed at a later date. Yeah. Now, this is also a sentiment Vosh gives as well when it comes to um, why he has the rhetoric he does and whatnot. Because, say, more extreme or, let's say, more anarchistic or more tank or more ML leftists really don't 
seek alliances with non-leftists or non-anarchists. My personal experience is that there, there are actually reasons for this. All right? It's not just because they're hateful or they're toxic. I mean, sometimes the toxicity comes from how toxic the society is. And it is kind of a runoff from any group that wants to engage with the status quo means they can't engage with you, the radical. And this means you're kind of left out in the cold. You want to make alliances with these with people less radical than you, but they will never be able to make an alliance with you because they're not as radical. And that's kind of where there's a contradiction that saying this kind of needs to be resolved somehow. I don't know how yet. Um, it seems to be usually around the meeting needs. You just kind of, it. this is where I get flustered because it's like, you make these alliances by dropping the radicalism mm. or like say, um, I'll put it in practical terms, like here in Albany, let's say we want to work on a housing issue, block evictions. We would need to do it. If we do it with non-radicals, we would need to do it completely nonviolently. We could not, you know, throw anything at the police. And the second we did, we'd be disowned or block or get in the police's way. It's almost like, you know, it becomes performative. And since, Radicals like us maybe don't want to be performative. It means we can't really be cooperated with because they don't see it, maybe rightly, as being performative. They see it as making a difference. They're raising awareness. They are, in fact, uh, delaying the inevitable or they're buying more time or they're or raising money, you know. So it's, it becomes an act of charity almost, but uh, sold as an act of solidarity. Um, but it isn't really building people power so much or, or, or it is a little bit and more so than the radicals are doing. But again, it's like, cause nobody who isn't as radical just doesn't, they don't click. Right. So th th that's the one that's the most problematic to me as far as just like, I, I haven't figured it out, but here's the one that is a bit more um, interesting support balkanization at all times. Anarchism is a global game. Failure to create large pockets of anarchist societies across the globe will doom the movement. It may seem counterintuitive for anarchists to support nationalistic endeavors. However, as noted above, a stateless society will most likely be made up of smaller communities with their own customs, cultures, and sense of community. Every nation that splits up uh, brings us closer to that. So when the Basque wish to separate from Spain, support them. When the Irish wish to leave the UK, support them. When the Kurds want to leave Iraq or Syria, support them. Support any move that creates nations with smaller areas of control. So did anarchists in general. But a lot of nations support other nations, breaking up so they can install puppets. Well, yes, they do, because smaller nations are weaker nations. Weaker nations are a stepping stone to no nations. And the uh, two more. Stop fighting with other anarchists. Ansoc versus Anprim. Ancom versus ANCAP. Well, let's be honest. It's everybody versus ANCAPs at some point. <laughs> this ANCAP fighting creates an easily exploitable rivalry that allows others to co-op groups. Can you provide any other explanation for anarchists of any sort uh, to be offering to defend U.S. immigration agents? It's the hatred of ANCOMs that led ANCAPs to make such a statement. Remember, no matter what economic system you support, you're an anarchist first. Siding with the state, this is a bottom unity pitch, mind mm -hmm. you. If yeah. it was a left unity pitch, it would sound or be done differently. 
uh, siding with the state other than anarchism should be the clearest sign that you have been co-opted. Remember, there is room for every possible configuration of anarchism without the state. So to ANCOMs, well, ANCAPs believe in hierarchy. They aren't anarchists, but they do want the destruction of the state. That puts them in the anarchist pantheon. Let's apply the ANCOM theory, though, and see what, where it leads. If ANCAPs were to establish these geographic monopolies and behave as tyrants, what would happen? Under the ANCOM doctrine, the workers would rise up, seize the means, and thereby put an end to the anarcho-capitalist menace. It's a fight that could take place later, once the actual opposition has been defeated. Let's also be honest, most self-described ANCAPs are not really the tyrant titans of industry that they think they are. Yeah. Though they are usually like tech bros who have a pretty good income, so they're in the professional class. And to ANCAPs, NAP, property rights, free markets, and helicopters. Under the ANCAP doctrine, communism wouldn't be able to compete in a free market. Communes would collapse under their own weight. So why on earth would you waste time fighting a group that under your belief system would fail to compete and disappear. And to Amprims, these people aren't real anarchists because they are living with nature. Well, I have to admit, I personally believe that Amprims are the most purely hyphenated form of anarchism. That being said, I'm not giving up running water or central heat and air. But let's be very honest, most Amprims will be dead 30 years after the revolution anyway. Why waste time arguing about which economic system takes over after you're dead? <laughs> That's a little spiteful. And last, and not least, be an anarchist, because it is more practice and not a thing you are or an art. Every day, it's an, uh, as David Graeber would put it, anarchism is an action. It is a verb. Uh, every day, think for yourself, live your own life, encourage others, develop self-reliance, refuse to bow to any authority but your own conscience. The revolution isn't coming. It's here. It's just going to be a long war, and the most important battle is taking place every day inside your own mind. You have to live the life of an anarchist to show others it can be done. You are a walking advertisement for what you believe. Okay, so now for a kind of... Oh, you'll read the first one, which is kind of the top-down version almost, where, like, you know, an anarchist reporter is reporting on the events of this, this action. And then there's someone on the ground level describing both a critique of the action and, you know, what happened from the ground level. And I'll read that once you're done. All right. All right. So on July 17th, 2020, following a rally in Grant Park, the site of horrific police violence during the Democratic National Convention of 1968, demonstrators outwitted and outfought police officers, winning an opportunity to try to topple a hated statue of Christopher Columbus. In the following accounts, participants explore the tactics and strategies of the demonstrators and the lessons they learned in the process. Quote, this is not peaceful protest. That's not peaceful protest. That's anarchy. And we are going to put that down by the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot, threatening the demonstrators of July 17th for employing a small amount of force that Chicago police employ daily with impunity. She went on to brag about Chicago's long history of peaceful protest, urging people to follow that tradition and try to build bridges with others. If you're curious why people would want to tear down statues of Christopher Columbus, start here, and that's a link, for an account of the toppling of a Confederate monument ahead of the current wave of statue topplings, read this. All right, and then there's another link. 
the Battle of Grant Park. On Friday, July 17th, hundreds of demonstrators clashed with police in the course of attempting to topple the Christopher Columbus Monument in Grant Park in downtown Chicago. The Battle of Grant Park was one of the most confrontational and effective projectile assaults on the Chicago Police Department in decades. At 5 p.m. on Friday, a black and indigenous solidarity rally gathered at Buckingham Fountain in Grant Park. In the course of an indigenous ritual, rap performances, and impassioned speeches calling for defunding and abolishing the police and decolonizing Zigagong, the which I believe is the native. native term that I just completely butchered, the crowd grew to at least a thousand. When the rally concluded, around 7 p.m., people took the streets. The crowd assembled into march formation on Columbus Avenue and began to march toward the Christopher Columbus statue a few blocks south of the fountain. The march itself was unannounced, but the crowd immediately embraced it, while it appeared to come as a surprise to the few officers present. Headed largely by black, brown, and indigenous youth, the march was supported by a thunderous mobile sound system and supported by a series of large banners reinforced by PVC pipes. Behind the banners and intermingled throughout the crowd, about 40 people unfurled their umbrellas. The march was joyous, raucous, and well-organized. When the march approached the Statue of Columbus, about 35 bike cops surrounded the monument. This was not surprising, as the controversial colonial figure has been a recurring target for demonstrators throughout the summer. Both the Columbus statues in Chicago have been repeatedly vandalized since the uprising in Minneapolis. At the end of May, in response, Mayor Lori Lightfoot ordered city workers to wrap the statue in white plastic, causing the already egregious symbol to resemble a Klansman. Oh. <laughs> the marchers seemed prepared for the police presence. Rather than approaching the statue from the street, the crowd veered left off the road and back into Grant Park, stopping at a lightly wooded hilly area directly adjacent to the Columbus statue. Here, about 150 yards north of the monument, the banner unfolds rearrange themselves into a U-formation along with the mass of umbrella wielders. They surrounded a portion of the marchers, shielded them from view. When the march started moving again two minutes later, a 60-person black block had formed in broad daylight in the middle of the largest city in the Midwest. Boom. I am getting chills reading this. This is yeah. awesome. The march headed toward the statue the newly formed black block uh, shielded by banners and umbrellas. As the block reached the statue and the crowd surrounded it, the confrontation uh, ensued. Police grabbed at the banners, successfully stealing or breaking several of them. One officer used a pre piece of broken banner to attempt to beat demonstrators. There's a link to that. The pepper sprayed people, uh, they, pe they pepper sprayed people and hit them with batons. In response, from behind the umbrellas, hundreds of cans of LaCroix came, sparkling water came raining down on the police, striking some in the face. That's... <laughs> so, notice um, how many times... Soup for my family. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, here's the, 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 the irony pulling of it, is that if you recall from the Reason article, the two women talking about Antifa were drinking their seltzer, you know, right. hard seltzer. Which is, I think, lacrosse. Yeah. So it, it's like the, this is the drink 
of, you know, the bougie liberals or libertarians who despise us and we're going to chuck it at the police oh, <laughs> and it's also I, white I just, claw like um if you've, have you seen uh, all gas no breaks like there's a theme of uh normies or proud boys they love white claw <laughs> yeah see i i haven't read this article before so we <laughs> reading about the protesters i also want to, using Lacroix. that yes. was comes up again no it, it also want to point out this is the dramatized version yeah. All right. This will be contrasted by what I will read, which will be the less so. Okay. I'll continue. And then they show um, a Good. couple images and videos. There's a video here as well. There's a seven-minute video. Uh, we'll, we won't skip it, but I encourage um, check this out. So all sorts of people were grabbing LaCroix cans left and right. A solidarity critic yelled out, this is not the way. But he seemed isolated in his perception of the situation. No, they called him a solidarity critic. That's that's interesting. Now, see, um, in the mm-hmm. um, Unicorn Riot is is a kind yep. of anarchist. They they actually live stream or shoot the video of any kind of riot or unrest that occurs. And yeah, I've watched their stuff. Yeah, and then there's the guy who does gives reflections. So it's basically instead of watching the ten hours that he filmed, yeah. it's a, about an hour of content okay. of his summary of basically the Minneapolis riot. And when when they when the protests first came up to the police station, you had a few solidarity quote unquote critics that were putting their arms in front of the door, like "Don't break the door. Let's right. not attack the station. We, this is not the way." This is not the way. Um, but then. No, this is the way. Yes. And but it's like we, your way has led us here. Right. And so we're not we're, we're kind of done with that. The, the whole nonviolence. Don't don't throw stone. Don't push. Don't simmer. Don't keep things out of simmer. You know, no. Everyone anyway. else appeared to understand that this moment was about working together towards the common goal of taking down the statue. Mm hmm. In the prevailing mood, no one attempted to distinguish between good and bad protesters. It was as if everyone in attendance agreed that peace police are simply police. The barrage of LaCroix cans overwhelmed the police when fireworks began to land among the officers outside the LaCroix cans. The police surrendered the statue and the crowd overran the platform. People ripped the plastic wrap off the statue, threw up tags including BLM, ACAB, FTP, and LaCroix the cops. I love that. Others continued to push the police further away from the statue. Those who were able to used their bikes as shield for themselves and others. Some held the ground by putting their bodies on the line in spite of unrelenting police violence. Now, um... It could have been Pepsi cans. It could have been. Yeah. Oh, the Caitlyn Jenner. Uh, mm-hmm. It was on a not few. Not Caitlyn. Uh, who Cat, yeah, whatever. One, one of those Jenners. Yes. No, it was Caitlyn Jenner. Was it? Kylie, Kylie. Kylie Jenner. I said Caitlyn. Whatever. Which is the. But I, the point is major. that uh, uh, a week or so afterward, there were some actions where Antifa did throw Pepsi cans at Proud Boys and neo-Nazis. Good. (laughs) Okay, go on. Meanwhile, on the statue platform, several attempts were made to secure a climbing rope around the statue's outstretched arm. One of these had proved inadequate. A brave comrade emerged emerged from the crowd and free-climbed the statue, clenching the rope between their teeth. They ascended the colonist uh, idol idol, and secured the ropes around its arm. The remaining banner assumed its fourth role of the day, 
when friends stretched it out horizontally beneath the climber in case they fell. Oh. Upon descending, the climber trust fell. Trust fell. The last few feet into the safety net offered by the adoring banner holders. The ropes, now attached to the statue, were spread out in two teams formed to pull on them. While this was unfolding, people pushed the police out of the area multiple times so that others could focus on pulling the ropes. The crowd secured the area for a considerable amount of time while people repeatedly attempted to topple the statue. During this time, demonstrators uh, sustained multiple injuries as the police continued to employ pepper spray and brutal force. The cops targeted people with bicycles, stealing over a hundred of them from the crowd. One young organizer who had spoken at a rally earlier was filming the police beating a demonstrator when police attacked her and knocked out her front teeth. Conflicting reports have Ugh. circulated I feel, regarding... I feel that because I have a chipped front tooth. Yeah. Oh. Conflicting reports have circulated regarding how many cops were hurt. Supposedly, 45 were injured and 18 went to the hospital. Now, contrast that with the Reason article that said... 40, it said 49 were sent to the hospital. Yeah. So, well, whatever. Yeah. Though we don't know how many of those were offensive injuries incurred as a consequence of attempting to injure others. When police backup arrived, they managed to recapture the area with reinforcements in massive amounts of pepper spray, causing everyone in the crowd to cough and choke. Having sustained a number of injuries and realizing they'd done all they could, the crowd linked arms and withdrew to Bunkingham Fountain, where they regrouped and safely dispersed. According to reports, 12 demonstrators were arrested. All of them were released on Saturday. Despite having failed to bring down the statue, the crowd demonstrated that they have learned a number of lessons in the course of this movement. They worked together in a way that allowed for various elements to act with trust in the people around them. Trust in the moment trust in the justice of their actions. At the end of the evening, the statue was still standing, but the resolve that initially animated the group remained palpable. They needed stronger ropes, better climbing gear, perhaps more explicit invitations to help pull the ropes. But most importantly, they had made it clear that if people come prepared and remain determined, they can face down the Chicago Police Department. Now, here's some... Um more from an insider's perspective, decolonize Chicago, Chinagong, native name for Chicago. Uh, or at least it's that Chicago, like a lot of place names, are just butchered versions of the native name. Yeah. Half the states have such names. A truly effective protest is one that disrupts, disturbs, or damages the status quo. Those are the sort of actions that get a response in the form of concessions from the state reforms. Although this is not a universal law, they may be outliers it is broadly applicable theory. Now, I want to take a moment to distinguish this, probably fail in doing so, but it, it because it's like Tim Pool, eat your heart out. But this is not being jokerified, you know, just wanting the world to burn because this is with a purpose. This is about removing the Columbus statue. It's about weakening the state so that community groups can actually flourish. Uh, whether it be co-ops or whatever, you know, weaken corporate power by robbing it or whatever. Like Jimmy Dore is kind of jokerified right now. He just wants everything to burn. Or, or you get into that mindset of, uh, as as other leftists point out, like you just you make a list of people, and if they disagree with you, they're the enemy too, which is toxic and damaging. 
and it's split. It's is what causes the, the splitting and the, and the non-cohesive left. But this is because you just have a split of, if not split, but different attitudes of interacting with the status quo. You know, you just have people want to elect more Dems or at least primary Dems with progressive Dems. And again, step two is like they'll have enough and that will be a big impact, but it will not be political revolution. It will not actually grant us uh, actual concessions because, see, it does help to have people like the squad in Congress. But then you need a militant movement pushing on the outside. And that's what's missing. Like, it's the Trump supporters that have been having weekly rallies for Stop the Steal. We're not doing weekly rallies for the COVID bill. And that hurts a lot because no one's called for it, even our own organization. We need to probably do that. But we're also kind of on a... The difference right now between left and right is we're not holding rallies because we want to stop the spread. That's the reason why. It's not because we're cowards and we don't want to do anything militant or protest even. It's that we just we don't want to have such massive events again. June was the exception because it wasn't quite, yeah. especially in New York, uh, we didn't have a rising, uh, a rising rate. It was somewhat under control, at least outside of New York City. Uh, so anyway... Back to the inside voice. And I'll try to summarize it here so we don't take too much longer All with right. this. Uh, these dem- Okay, oh yeah, there's something about other uh, demonstrations and stuff. Chicago, Illinois has a long history of truly effective protests. Recently, however, there has been mostly been less than effective demonstrations. Peaceful, in line, working with the state, as opposed to against it. Neither disturbing, nor disrupting, nor damaging. The George Floyd flame roared here, too. But for the most part, the police seem to have control over the flow and direction of the effective, quote-unquote, actions. Although organizers prepared routes, marshals, chants, speakers, performers, and so on, the police ultimately directed traffic and both led and followed the demonstrations. At one point during one march, people attempted to march onto the highway. The demonstration involved many hundreds of people, whereas there were less than a dozen police officers. A dozen. But officers said no. So the march continued past the highway. Another march around City Hall was led by an officer beckoning the demonstrators. I've been in those marches, and I pretty much don't involve myself with them now. I basically don't march with them if if it does that stuff. I basically either, if if not leave, I do something different like I stay put, you know, Um, and, and whatever. These demonstrations do not feel like actions against the state. They feel like a ride at an amusement park, a slow one. Mm. And I can't tell you how much I felt that uh, when I'm in liberal marches. Oh, it's yeah. like this is a ride that makes you feel good. It's like being in Disney World. You know, like just, the Women's March on Washington that like there's no like what what's the goal? Like what what's the outcome? It certainly wasn't a compassionate COVID bill. Right. Or an omnibus spending bill that wasn't half still military industrial complex stuff. Empire related spending. The evening started around five in the afternoon with a loose gathering of people. Okay, yeah, some some of this is just repeating of the actual details. Let's skip ahead to the banners are at the front, people using umbrellas into position around them. This creates a sort of phalanx, which is initially very effective. The block moves forward, the statue, and the limited number of officers there, maybe twenty. People launch soda cans, full water bottles, 
fireworks, and other small items at the officers from behind the phalanx. The officers, unsure of what to do and not presenting a front, grab at the umbrellas and spray past them before withdrawing from the statue to wait for backup. Immediately, people begin stripping the plastic covering from the statue, and so on and so on. Oh, yeah, and, and they cover it again, and some begin pulling out rope. But this is the first oversight. Up until now, the operation has been beautiful. The perimeter is well established. Peaceful demonstrators stand in deep lines behind the block and police. From the view of the far west side of the street across the statue, there seem, almost seems to be more riot cops than protesters. From the statue, the opposite seems true. The officers are abusing the peaceful demonstrators, but aren't making a concerted effort to push through them. They're using pepper spray, but not tear gas or rubber bullets. Unfortunately, the rope is far too thin, made of a material that stretches too easily when pulled. If properly placed and properly pulled, it might still suffice to topple it. One person tries about half a dozen times to throw it over the statue, then a young person from outside the block comes and climbs the statue, gripping the plastic covering, in order to loop the rope around the extended arm. The arm is near the top of the statue, extending above the edge of the base. There is only one rope. And so on. You know, and so on. it goes through that. One officer strikes a young man ahead, opening a broad gash, blood is pouring down his face in multiple rivets, dripping onto the young woman who is trying to pull him behind the line. People are still holding a tight formation, protecting the ropes from the officer's advance. The officers, in their frustration, overextend themselves. A group of them is suddenly surrounded by a line of protesters. Cans and bottles are thrown. The officers strike back and are beaten with pipes and signs. They are left an opening away from the statue. People returning to pull along the rope and doing and so on. And basically their formation kind of gets a little a pulled apart a bit. So they, Chicago learned a few lessons from this. They learned a lesson about their own power, their own agency. They learned a lesson about the vulnerability of the state. Um, this is also something in Belarus where the uh, point made, and this is just general protest tactics of, the police can contain uh, a 100,000-person march a lot better than they can contain 10 Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember reading that. Or to scale it down to maybe what's more appropriate for us, um, we could have 10,000 people in one place or 1,000 people in 10 places. Yeah. And they have a lot more time kind of, if not containing it, controlling it. Right. So that's the end of that one. And with the last 10 minutes, I will quickly summarize, mostly just by reading the the topics and the subtitles here. Mm. The Step-by-Step Guide to Direct Action by CrimeThink. What it is, what it's good for, how it works. I'll just read the intro. Direct action, simply put, means cutting out the middleman, solving problems yourself, rather, than petitioning the authorities, or relying on external institutions. This is the insurrectionary approach, by the way. Mm. Any action that sidesteps regulations and representation to accomplish goals directly is direct action. It includes everything from blockading airports to helping refugees escape to safety, and organizing programs to liberate your community from reliance on capitalism. Here we present a step-by-step guide to organizing, carrying out direct action, from the first planning stages to the debrief at the end, including legal support, media strategy, and proper security. Uh, There are countless scenarios in which you might want to employ direct action. Perhaps the representatives of despicable multinational corporations are invading your town to hold a meeting, and you want to do more than simply hold a sign. Perhaps... They've been there a long time operating franchises that exploit workers and ravage the environment, and you want to hinder their misdeeds. Perhaps you want to organize a festive, community-oriented event, such as a street party. Direct action can plant a public garden in an abandoned lot or defend it by paralyzing bulldozers. 
It can occupy empty buildings to house the homeless or shut down government offices. Whether you're acting in secret with a trusted friend or in a mass action with thousands of people, the basic elements are the same. And that's what makes watching right-wingers just break a door in, was it Washington? Right. Truly pathetic. Um, they didn't even enter the building because they knew maybe then they'd actually be arrested and they are not going to put up with that. Um, <laughs> and, they, and notice they were not pepper sprayed at all. So kind of a first part is brainstorming, choose a project, and devise a plan. Plans over personalities. For more clandestine actions, brainstorm in a secure environment with a trusted friend. Keep your ideas to yourself as you hash them out so you won't have already given them away ready to try them. The work clandestine also brings uh, to mind a group that operated during the anti-war movement in the aughts. They were called Circa, the Clandestine Insurrectionary Clown Army. And they were, in fact, a group of anarchists who clowned up and would harass uh, military recruitment stations by clowning about outside of them. And they also would uh, partly dress up in fatigues uh, while being clowned up. So they're like military clowns or, you know, when you're clowning, you're making fun of something or parodying it. So you just parody the military by kind of marching in step and well, they're honking. And it's all very, it's, it's hilarious. It's actually, I find it great. I would like to kind of bring it back. And there's, so, so there's kind of different types of blocking, you know, there's black block, but there's also like a, a there's glam block where you all wear wigs and, oh. and, you know, kind of glam it up. And then there's clown block where you all clown. So you, your identities are pretty much covered up. You know, you look like a totally Yeah, let's person. all dress like Santa and form the Santa block. Santa block. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never see it coming. Goals. Establish and prioritize the goals of the action. Who is your action for? Is it directed at on-the-spot spectators, corporate media viewers, the owners of specific corporations, their stockholders? This is, this is where like, tac- like diversity of tactics comes in because depending on your goal and your audience, like some actions, let's say breaking property, like that, the, the audience is not the media or the, or the public, right? It's, it's, it's actually to disrupt. It's to have a physical impact that d- completely ignores PR. The mistake that's usually made is that, well, there is going to be bad PR from it, right? But what you do is, um, or at least the case that this, you know, guide makes is you have a PR strategy in place that you actually have a, someone for the media to contact to talk to, why did you break these windows? And it's like, well, for one thing, they have insurance. It's not really costing them money at the end of the day. They pay for that insurance for a reason. Second, you know, then they go through the reasons. But what is it intended to accomplish? You know, it's an important question. Is it meant to communicate ideas, to call attention to an injustice, to call attention to something, uh, to inspire, to secure resources, to set a particular tone, to inflict crippling material damage, to provide a deterrent? You know, you're just being bullies, I guess. Uh, to demonstrate a model to others they can apply, and so on and so on. Um, word on structure. And the affinity groups often mentioned already. Work tightly with those you know. One of the most efficient and so, so see before we started the show with uh, a, a right winger um, talking about this from the outside. Now this is like this is how they explain an affinity group and its importance. An affinity group is a group of friends who trust each other deeply and share the same goals. Working together over a long period of time, they become efficient and effective. For a small action, the members of an affinity group can take on different roles. For a larger action, affinity groups can work with other ones. Uh, in what's called a cluster, each group playing a role. 
This can make decision-making easier, and it would be one big mess. Now, sometimes it doesn't feel like I'm, I'm – the Green Party, our local Green Party, is kind of the offending group I work with. Mm-hmm. But we're always not always gelling with what we kind of want to do or work on because we have different styles. So it doesn't really feel – it's not really a good affinity group. And I kind of wish I had one because, see, affinity groups are also cliques. Yeah. So especially in the anarchist mode, in the insurrectionary mode, they don't want other people not in their clique to join in. Yeah. Like they are, in fact – I mean this is the toxic side of it. So I'm just giving a toxic counterfactual of where it can go wrong is – they do, in fact, push people away who aren't in their clique, yeah. you know. And so you kind of need to be an affinity group. But like, I don't hang out with enough people who <laughs> are radical enough. Yeah. All my other friends, let's say they're nerdy friends, so the people I'm really comfortable around and work well with are nerds, and some of them aren't as radical as me. And yeah, too you know, many nerds are right wingers, or moderate, or liberals. Yeah. And they're just simple liberals, and sometimes, or or the best is not the best, but I mean. You know, majority I know are progressive. They're yeah. Sanders, Bernie Kratz kind of thing. And, um, you know, they're, they're, like they get the, the anti capitalism is there, the ra- like actual radical tendencies or uh, views are there. But then the strategy and tactics and activism, which doesn't maybe exist for them, th- that's all missing. So they're kind of left with what they see the most online or in their circles, and that might be arguing about the COVID bill, yeah, and uh, and uh, force the vote with Jimmy Dore, you know, and, and that's of course a crime, you know, that's terrible, that's a disaster to me because yeah. like that is not the conversation any of us or any would be radicals should be having about this. Uh, recruiting, bring in other individuals and groups carefully. Once you have a plan to propose, figure out how many people you need to accomplish it. If your plan requires secrecy. For only people you trust. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to go very quickly. Just the brass tacks. Dynamics. Make sure power is distributed evenly within your group. Talk about that all the time on this program about horizontal organizing, uh, and so on, and and nonviolent communication stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the basics. Security culture. Circulate information on a need to know basis. Consent. It's important in security as it is in sexual in- intimacy. <laughs> it is never acceptable to violate another's wishes regarding security issues. That is why we get really triggered when someone takes a picture out in public. Yeah. It's like, see, we have our own culture, and then when someone doesn't interact with it, like basically counters it completely, makes yeah. it moot, it's basically like it's like spitting on you, you know? Yeah. It's like everything you stand for and believe in, I don't care. <laughs> not, not respect. No respect. Uh, but have, uh, depending on the action, legal support. Prepare infrastructure to provide support during and after the action. Everyone involved in the action should be aware of and prepared for the risk when taking uh, and potential criminal charges associated with them. We know a lot, a lot better than a lot of cops sometimes. Yeah. Media. Establish what coverage you want and get it. Long before an action, when you are establishing and prioritizing goals, work out exactly how much media coverage you want, from which sources, and how you're going to obtain or avoid it. This could be composing and sending out a press release or a communique, electing a spokesperson to represent your project to the press. Mm. Um, this also includes having someone designated to talk to the cops when on scene because yeah. they do want to talk to someone. And sometimes it really does circumvent a lot of the conflict when it's like I saw a video of it was also a statue pulled down, but it was the opposite, not the opposite, but it was a different tone of the Grand Street one because it was a group of natives 
Ah. And this is a Columbus statue that for hey. decades they have asked to remove it, right? So you had some underliners, some sponsors, yep. uh, which is kind of important because here in Albany, like let's say we want to tear down one of our imperialist statues here in the state capitol, but we kind of need like the Hispanic caucus or something to kind of step forward and say we want this. Right. Otherwise, we're not organizing to do it. Yeah. Uh, but in this case, it was a indigenous group, and they talked to the police first and said, we're going to tear down the statue. You can charge me later. And they did. Uh, he got the charges were dropped, uh, or not dropped, but he had to do 100 hours community service later. Oh, was, yeah. But uh, it was the elderly man who was the only one who was charged, actually. But it was mm. actually a group of indigenous women who pulled down the statue, and they sang the indigenous movement anthem. It's a nice video. I'll have to try to link to that, too. The groundwork, planning, study the context, chart a strategy, plan for different scenarios. Just going through very general things, but there's all these details. And, 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 and it's a guide. It's a very nice guide. Preparation, gather equipment and dress appropriately. Scouting, study the site of the action and stay abreast of changes. You know, have, okay, roles. I like this one. Divide up responsibilities and set up decision-making structures. Identify all the roles necessary to pull off your plan and make sure everyone is filled in. Some potential roles include lookouts, scouts, police liaisons, media spokespeople, internal media or embedded media, people that are streaming the action, let's say, legal aid contacts, legal observers, medics, distractions, plants, meaning people disguised as innocent bystanders who are ready to intervene if necessary or who will politely honk their horns while a barricade is erected in front of them mm-hmm. instead of, you know, charging through right um getaway drivers people to transport materials uh so have a truck i, I like the well, this one antifa action um is very recent and they had a truck with a big speaker system on it so like you have a big pa system of their own to counter the police's and they could just and, and, and it was great for chant leading they had this chant it was like what's the noise mm. i'm not gonna say the rest <laughs> um but instead of like what do we want justice what do we want what do we want you know when do we get it you know the really old tired chance that liberals use now right and it's like I, I like these more like what's the noise you know it's like hip-hop concerts and then they explain spokes councils during and after the action awareness stay alert through the action i can attest to this stuff communications keep each other informed dispersal quiet quit while you're ahead a safe escape is the most commonly overlooked part of a direct action Debriefing, regroup to discuss what went well and what lessons can be learned. For the reading, uh, common objections to direct action. For information about specific direct action tactics, there is the Earth First Direct Action Manual, Eco Defense, a field guide to monkey wrenching, and Recipes for Disaster, an anarchist cookbook. Not the anarchist cookbook. Ah. This is an anarchist cookbook, which is a kind of food, not bombs, and a direct action guide like this one which basically they just kind of took verbatim almost. So in a future episode, we'll, we'll go into more direct democracy and, and kind of uh, communalist organizing. Uh, this is more of the stuff to do in the moment uh, while we're working to get there uh, because you kind of need to inspire. There's a kind of private, you know, not to go completely propaganda by the deed, but there is a kind of need to inspire people to kind of get off their butts and, kind of do something differently yeah anyway yeah we'll worry about this later we are going to stream uh we stream on homegrown hangout 
so I started a YouTube channel and a Twitch, and I'm going to start streaming. I've started making videos, and please check it out. We, uh, I think we're going to start streaming some of these podcast episodes on Twitch as well as being on radio. So we're just diversifying. Yeah, we're going to try to integrate. You can find us. We're going to try to integrate all of that, and it'll be beautiful. It's going to be a time.